We're going to be out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you're able to uh, turn there in your Bibles or your devices, your phones, your tablets, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There's a little bit of context before we get into the reading of the scripture here. Last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it was a doozy, it was intense. We're talking about church discipline. And there were some intense things going on there at, in the city of Corinth or the church of Corinth. Such things as incest. I mean, just incredible things that were taking place. Things that would make the non-believing world blush even as we talked about. And our Lord tells us how to handle this. Our Lord cares about the holiness of his church. So we're continuing on with our church, uh, our church matter series on the topic of holiness. Before we read, Paul tells us how to handle disputes in the, in the church. In Corinth, you know, right? the Corinthian church were basically airing their dirty laundry. You know what that means? They're putting out all their problems for the whole city, the non-believing world to see. And you got to understand this. The, the Corinthian city or the Corinthian church was steeped with Greek culture. I mean, just 50 miles away from Corinth, is Athens, and we know Athens is the epicenter of Greek culture. And the Greeks, they, they had a huge and sophisticated network of, 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 court, of a court system. Everybody was expected to participate. If you're 60 years old, you're expected to participate as a judge or arbitrator. If you're 30, year, 30 years old, you're expected to participate as a juror. So, I mean, this is a big, big uh, part of their culture. And, uh, and even it was so big that some people would come and sit in on court cases as a form of entertainment. Just because this is where the brightest and the best orators would gather and present their cases. And lives and decisions were made in this setting. This is a big deal. And this influenced the Corinthian church. They brought in their old way of thinking into the church. And litigation was a part of everyday life. To, to live in Corinth, you're in constant threat of being sued. And I don't know if that rings a bell for us today with, with, you know, with us be in our sue-happy culture here. But the, the, this whole suing culture bled into the Corinthian church. And so this is how, they, the, how a lot of the people were settling their disputes. They were just saying, all right, I'm going to take you to court. I'm going to take you to court. And so Paul addresses this issue and how disputes should be handled within the church. So if you're able to, please rise. We're going to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 11 today. We do this to, we rise to honor God's word. What a treasure that we have in God's word here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 1. Someone's excited back there. That's good. This is God's word. We should be excited. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Paul writes, or God's word says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Question mark. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts or to trivial cases here? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts or cases dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account or no standard or no esteem in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between brethren? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. 
Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your own brethren. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11 here, finishing up. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is a treasure. Your word is a light into our feet. Lord, we want to treasure up your words into our hearts so that we may not sin against you. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity to preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. As I was describing Corinth to you guys, did you not think of our own country? I mean, just driving to church, I took the 605 South, exited Valley Boulevard, and on my way to church, I think I counted eight billboards of just like certain um, injury law attorneys that you could hire. I mean, you just drive around or walk around or ride your bike around. You see buses with all kinds of advertisements. I remember growing up watching Chips and the Emergency. This is back in the day, guys. And during the daytime, daytime TV, I was a little kid. I saw all kinds of attorneys pop up. I'm like, what is all this about as a little kid? We are very similar to the, the Greek culture in that way. We go to the courts. We go to the courts to settle issues that we have with one another. And, to, and in our country, we've been taught about rights, privileges, and we may think of things such as it's not fair. It's just not right, right? And so, therefore, we take it to the courts I found this quote by uh, Warren Berger, who was a Supreme Court justice in 1982. This is from the 80s, guys, early 80s. He said, one reason our courts have become overburdened is that Americans are increasingly turning to the courts for relief from a range of personal distresses and anxieties, issues, right? Remedies for per personal wrongs that were considered the responsibility of institutions other than the courts, are now boldly asserted as legal entitlements. The courts have been expected to fill, here now, hear this out now, the courts have been expected, this is for Supreme Court justice, to fill the void created by the decline of the church, family, and neighborhood unity. So Supreme Court Justice Berger is basically saying the courts are just filled with people because there's a breakdown in genuine community in the church, in our homes, in our home units, and also in our neighborhoods. And what does this mean? This is, that means there's a decline in genuine relationships. There's a decline in just meaningful exchanges with one another where we could talk through difficult things, hurts and wounds. That means there's been a decline in Mutual convictions. We believe the same things. We're about the same things. Therefore, we operate under the same standards and expectations. There's been a breakdown, according to Supreme Court Justice Berger. Therefore, we need to resort to outside arbitration. That's what that means. When you have to resort to outside help, 
That means that the, the relationship, the commonality is not strong enough to handle that dispute. Right? That's what that means. So today's message is titled Gospel Amnesia. Gospel Amnesia. Amnesia. This is kind of a thing that I want to take time to explain a little bit. In my coaching career, football is a very, at times, a very violent game. There's a lot of contact. I think that's partly why we love this game. And concussions became a big deal towards the end of my last, I'd say, three or four years of coaching, where it wasn't an issue before. It was an issue, but it wasn't a highlighted issue, I should say. And so I got to learn a lot. You know, when people who, had, who were concussed, that's the proper term, symptoms such as, you know, headaches, obvious things, Nausea, people who were concussed had, were vomiting at times. People who suffered concussions had light sensitivity. So right now I'd be wearing big sunglasses, thick, dark sunglasses because the light would just be bothering me. And the fourth type of symptom was amnesia. People would forget what just happened, short-term memory, those sort of things. And the Corinthians were just beat down just by the culture that they began to forget who they were. No different. They were experiencing a type of spiritual concussion there that they were forgetting who they were. And so they became so happy. They're just suing one another. And so at Evergreen SUV, we need to make sure we learn from the, from the Corinthians here and what Paul is about to say. So Paul is addressing their gospel amnesia that they are experiencing. Paul treats this by, being, by reminding them of point number one, if you want to take notes here, you got to write this down. Point number one, he reminds them of their gospel authority. What are you talking about, Pastor? Well, let's look at the scripture here, verse one. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law or to be judged before the unrighteous or, and not before the saints? I mean, meaning, why are you taking your grievances to the non-believing world? Why? Paul's saying, I, I don't get it. Do you remember what you've been given through the gospel? And, and basically, Paul's saying, there's a disconnect here. This does not compute. This is inconsistent with people of the gospel. Why are you going to non-believers to settle these trivial cases? Why? Just like anyone who has a hard time remembering, right? My dad is, is struggling with memory right now. I have to remind him. So Paul says, do you not know? Do you not know? Right here. In, do you not know is a big phrase throughout Corinthians. But in this chapter alone, six times Paul uses that word, that, that phrase, do you not know? In, in the, it, we'll cover the other three do you not knows next week. But this week, there's three times where he says, do you not know? He's reminding him, hello, do you not know? Do you not know that the saints, verse 2 says that, is going to judge or rule the world? Paul says, do you not know that, the, that we, the church, are going to even judge and rule angels? What? What is Paul talking about here? These, these, these are end-time realities. These are absolutely end-time realities where we're going to serve with Christ on his throne. We're not going to be ruling like Christ, but we're going to help Christ rule and judge the world and angels. Revelation 3.21 says those who have overcome will sit with Christ on his throne to help him rule. And so this word judge here in the scriptures, it says in verse 2, that the saints will judge the world. Verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? This word 
uh, krino could be uh, translated judge or rule. In essence, Christians, the church, will have authority over the world and through angels. This is what, where, where Paul's reminding him, hey, why are you going to the lower courts when you guys are part of the Supreme Court? Why are you allowing these people to judge your cases? I'm just a little time out here. When I read, we're going to judge or rule angels, I start scratching my head, how does that work? Right, because when I think of angels, I think of like Gabriel, right? I think of these Michael. I think these powerful angels, angel that came to see Mary, right? So you're gonna have the Messiah. I mean, these powerful angel beings. I look at Isaiah. These angels are singing and praising God, holy, holy, holy. Are you God Almighty? I mean, these are powerful spirit beings. I'm saying we're gonna rule them. We're gonna have authority over them. How does that make sense? Well, let me just remind us here. The angels are powerful. Angels are messengers of God. Angels serve God. But remember this. Angels weren't made in the image of God. You and I were made in the image of God. Remember this. Angels didn't have Christ die for their salvation. We had Christ pay with his precious blood for you and me. And even in Hebrews 1.14, it says angel beings are sent to serve the elect, those who are called. So, I mean, these are very clear things. How We are actually set apart from angels, believe it or not, right? Praise God. All glory be to God. But Paul, in essence, going back to the, this, this whole situation in Corinth, Paul's, in essence, making a greater to lesser argument here. Meaning, if you're going to judge the world, if you're going to judge angels in eternity... How can you not handle these trivial matters that's taking place in Corinth? Makes sense, right? Saying you're suing makes no sense. Makes no sense. The eternal church is submitting to the temporal. Does it make sense? This absolutely doesn't make sense. The lowliest brother or sister in the church who's indwelt by the Spirit, who knows God's Word, is way more equipped to judge issues in the church than even the most trained, the most experienced non-believer. We have what we need right here. God has given us everything that we need to judge one another. General principle here is this. All right, This is a general principle. I want you to make sure we take something home from this. What is God telling us to this? In essence, Christians should not be suing Christian brothers and sisters just arbitrarily. The first thing that we think, oh, I'm going to sue you. I'm going to take you to court. That should not be happening. We should do everything in our power to reconcile with one another. Going back to church discipline, going back to church restoration, Matthew 18 is a very personal thing where it says if a brother sins, go to him in private, right? I mean, that means that you and I have a relationship. That means that if you're able to go to a brother or sister, you have a relationship with them. And if that's not enough, then you bring two or three. Maybe you bring in a church leader to get involved. And if that's not enough, then you bring in the whole church. This talks about a community. This is exactly what Supreme Court Burger was talking about. We have a community. And it's that connection that allows Christians to arbitrate for one another, care for one another. Now, I want to be very clear. Could a Christian ever go to court with another Christian? Is that ever permissible? Yes. Answer is yes. I mean, just, just some examples. Paul 
although this wasn't against another Christian, Paul in the book of Acts, in Acts 16, Acts 22, Acts 25, appeals to the Roman courts, does he not? He, appear, uh, he appeals to Caesar. So Paul does it, the one who authored 1 Corinthians. But in Romans 13, God has ordained civic or civil authorities to maintain order. So if there's any criminal activity in the church, if someone wants to kill you, if someone wants to hurt you, okay, let's take it to the authorities. We're talking about trivial cases in verse 2. It says, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts or, or the smallest judgments or the trivial cases in your church? We're talking about these grievances that are taking place within the church. If there's serious criminal activity here at Evergreen Street, absolutely the, the, the authorities will be involved. I mean, that just makes sense. But this, what was happening in Corinth was more just a knee-jerk reaction. I'm going to sue you. And we're going to find out more in this next point here, what motivated the Corinthian church. Point number one was we need to remember our gospel authority. We're going to rule the world and angels. Let's go to point number two. Gospel amnesia is treated by acknowledging any, point number two, gospel absence. All right? That means it's not there. The, 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 the implications and the, and the benefits of the gospel is not displayed in the church. Verse 5. Let me read verse 5 for you. If I say this to your shame, like, okay, Paul, before in, in chapter 4, I don't say this to shame you. Now Paul is going there. I'm saying this to shame you. As if Paul is supposed to trying to shock them into remembering who they were. Like, I'm coming after you now. I'm going to go below the belt on this one now. All right, I'm going to come and try to shame you, to shock you into remembering who you are. I, verse, uh, chapter, verse 5, I say this to shame you. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? This is biting sarcasm. Because remember, the Corinthians thought they're wise, they're educated, they're sophisticated, they're smart, they have worldly wisdom. They're into education. They're being into great orators. But Paul is saying, wait a minute. With all that wisdom, with all that knowledge, there's not one person that could arbitrate between you guys? What's wrong with you guys? So Paul is going there. Paul is driving home at this fact that you guys have forgotten who you are in Christ. Corinthian legal system. All right, just going back to culture. My mentors always say, take the people back into the time when the Bible is written. Then you could truly understand what the truth is that God has, uh, has written there 2,000 years ago. So the Corinthian legal system was not about justice, right, children? It's not about fairness. It was not about fairness. You know what it was about? It was about maintaining or gathering or gaining your own personal gain. The Corinthian legal system was about gaining your own status, gaining greater honor, gaining more financial gain. This is what this was about. It was a very selfish thing. And this is, the courts were simply an arena. You know, we like watching sports. This was simply an arena where, where the most talented orders were able to show their wares and to duke it out in, in a verbal match. And this is where people's lives were, were decided, the fate of people's lives were decided, where this is where the powerful took advantage of the weak. 
This is where the powerful took advantage of the weak to, to basically flex their social supremacy over one another. This is what the Corinthian court system was all about. This wasn't about justice or fairness, guys. Brothers taking advantage of one another for personal gain. This is not the picture of the gospel. So the hard issue at Corinth was this. Why was Paul so hard about the Corinthians taking one another to court? Is because these, these Corinthians were being selfish. It was all about themselves. Remember, Paul calls them arrogant, boastful. This is all about raising up one another's platform, exploiting one another, exploiting one another, trampling brother, trampling sister for personal gain. And so Paul is trying to shock him, like, hey, come on, man. This is shameful. What's wrong with you guys? And this is your take. Verse 6 is this. says this, but brother goes to law or to be judged with brother and that before unbelievers. Like you brothers are taking one another to court. Doesn't make sense. You forgot gospel amnesia. You forgot that the gospel, right, is about reconciliation. Who are we reconciled to church? Who does the gospel reconcile us with, make us at peace with? With God, that's number one. But guess who else? With one another, the church. This is how this works. It's not just me and God, all right, me and God are at peace. Obviously, that's the primary relationship, that the most important relationship, but God also reconciles us to one another. The Corinthians forgot about this. There was no concept of this. There was like, all right, you know what? I'm going to do whatever I got to do, and I'm going to trample you, brother, to get it done. What they're basically doing, brothers and sisters, is they're demonstrating to the whole city Hear me out now. When you, when, you tr- when you treat each other like this, you demonstrate to the world that you don't fully believe in the reconciling power of the gospel. You're basically saying, you know what? Either I don't get the gospel or the gospel is not enough for us to be reconciled. What? Right? Th- that's what Paul's saying. You know, there's a disconnect. Think about it. Think about it. Whenever a brother or sister tries to gain temporary gain, which is maybe status or money or property, whatever that is. This this world is temporary. As much as we like this world, this world is absolutely temporary. And you know, and the the cost of it is when you trample under feet, hopefully this doesn't fall down. That wasn't as hard as I could have done it, but... But if if you trample under feet, brother or sister, to get personal gain... You're basically saying, I don't get it. I don't get what the gospel is all about. I mean, think about it. You're trying to achieve something so temporary that you're willing to damage a relationship that you're going to see forever in heaven. However much money, however much status that we could gain, (laughs) none of that's going to matter in heaven. But you're going to stare at your brother and sister Forever in heaven, that's going to be there, right? So you do everything you can. The point is you do everything you can to reconcile. It's up to God ultimately to soften the heart. But have you done your part with those that come to mind right now? Right now, as you're sitting there at home or here on the grass, has somebody came to mind right now? We're like, you know what? I can't stand that person. And they're a Christian. 
This person did me wrong. Does somebody come to mind? Have you done everything in your power? Maybe you haven't taken them to court, but have you done everything in your power to reconcile with them? Maybe you already taken them to your own court and just X them out of your mind. That's not acceptable. That's not acceptable before the Lord. That's practicing gospel amnesia. You forget what the gospel is all about. We've forgotten. Let's go to the third point here. Third point, how does Paul treat gospel amnesia? He treats gospel amnesia in the Corinthians by by calling for a gospel appeal. What does that mean? Gospel appeal. He basically says, minister the gospel, apply the gospel, do what Jesus did for you. He took on punishment that he didn't deserve and forgave. <laughs> That's the gospel appeal. Let me read to you. Verse 7, it says this, Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you. You've already lost if you've already taken someone to court. You think you're winning? You think you're going to gain some property? You think you're going to gain some esteem back? No, it's already a loss. You forgot what you're fighting for, brother or sister. You already made the gospel look tarnished to a dying world. You forgot what this is all about. And I just think to myself, like, if I'm a pastor now, so how can I help our church family understand and apply the scriptures more? Has anybody came to you recently and say, hey, so-and-so did this to me. Maybe it was a business deal maybe in the church. Maybe it's a, it's a, you, you hired someone to do some work for you. I've hired people within the church to do work, and, they, and praise God, it's been awesome every single time. But it's not always like that for everybody. I understand. Has someone wronged you? Has someone slandered you? And they come to you, they share with you, and I'm thinking about doing this. What type of advice would you give them? Remember Pastor Dan's um, sermon about, about ministering in the hard places? What kind of biblical counsel, biblical advice would you give this person? Would you give worldly advice? Because, yeah, man, that's not fair. You got to stand up for yourself. You can't be a doormat. Or let's see what Paul says right here. Verse 7, Paul says this, Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? This is counterculture. This is counterintuitive. This does not make sense. What do you mean wronged? What do you mean defrauded? These words wronged, I'm going to explain these two words. Wrong kind of carries the meaning of unjust treatment, mistreatment. You've been injured by somebody, you know. Defrauded is more property, stolen. You've been robbed. You've been deceived. People have taken your uh, property. It's more property related. So Paul is saying, why not just take it? What? What? Why not? Paul says, why not be wrong? Why not be defrauded? What kind of advice is that, right? In the world that I came from, football, that was not good advice there, right? You're <laughs> like, get after them, right? And in other, world, other arenas that we sit in, is this the type of advice that you would give? Why not just be wronged? Why not just be defrauded? Right? It's counterintuitive. Counterintuitive. Jesus in Matthew 5 in the, in the Sermon on the Mount says this, if a brother slaps you in the cheek, insults you, give him the other cheek. Jesus says, 
that in order to be his disciple, you must surrender your rights, not fight for your rights. Matthew 16, 24 says, deny yourself. Why not be wrong? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. That means death. That means you're willing to die to yourself. Pick up your cross daily, every day, and what? Follow me. In essence, Christ is basically telling us to do what he's already done for us. Amen? And sometimes we do all have gospel amnesia at times. We forget. Sometimes we think that we, our rights are more important than looking to our Lord. And so you may be asking yourself, well, pastor, you don't understand. You don't understand how, how, how many times that I've suffered through this person's hands. Right? Obviously, if it's an issue of physical protection, I'd say tell us. Tell me. Tell the pastors. Tell. Uh, we'll take it to the authorities. This is not, we're not talking about physical protection. We're not talking about that type of abuse here. We're talking about insults. We're talking about maybe taking advantage of at times. Right? This is what we're talking about here. How am I able to do this, pastor? This is, you're asking me to do something that's ridiculous. This is crazy. This doesn't even make sense to me. Right? Well, let's look to our Christ. Let's look to our Lord here. Verse 8 here. Now, just keep in mind, verses 1 through 7 in chapter 6 has been a bunch of questions. Paul's firing off a bunch of questions. Bam, 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 bam. Now you get to verse 8. This is the first time Paul makes a statement. Indicative statement. He goes, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your own brethren. Matter of fact, you're the perpetrators, Paul is saying. Like, what? Paul is basically, as he charges them to forgive one another, he's saying, actually, you're the one that needs forgiveness, brother, sister. He is the one that's basically, how he does it is he convicts them of their sin. You've been doing this all along. You're not the victim. Actually, you victimized people. Paul is saying this to the Corinthians. And then basically Paul drives home the scalpel and says, you are the sinner here. You are the one that needs forgiveness by what you've done. And let's look at verse 9 and 10 here. We're going to cover verse 9, 10, and 11 more in depth next week. There's issues of sexuality and things that we need to cover in light of our culture today. But today we're talking about lawsuits and forgiveness. Verse 9 says, or do you not know? There's another, that's the third, do you not know? Paul is trying to remind him, snap out of that, that gospel amnesia that you've been a part of here. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's serious now. If you are uh, been part of this, the Bible says that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul basically talks about the consequences of being a sinner. And here's some laundry list of sins. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but these are some of the things that the Lord led Paul to write. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's those who practice sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, those who make other things more important than God, such as sports or or anything else, jobs, money, idolaters, worship created things. Nor adulterers, that means you weren't faithful to your wife or husband. Nor effeminate, these are the passive members in the homosexual act. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, those are the greedy. Nor the drunkards, those who are partying all the time. No revilers, 
people who try to cause issues with one another. Nor swindlers, those who trick people, who, who defraud people, kind of what Paul's talking about, will inherit the kingdom of God. This is very serious because how do we interpret this? How do we understand this? Because if you're honest with yourself, you, many of us have acted on a lot of these things, if not in act, but in thought. Like I've shared before, I've, I'm guilty of these things, many of these things. The point is this, if any of these sins or any sin, brother or sister, identifies who you are, you're not in the kingdom of God. That's what that means. If, the, if you say, you know what, God's good with this, this is how I am. You're not a true believer. That's what Paul's saying here. So as he's saying to the Corinthians, if you're good defrauding people and wronging yours in the church, you're probably not a Christian. You're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what Paul is saying, because a true believer will battle sin and temptation all the days of our lives. Amen? It's a constant tension, is it not? It's a constant tension within all of us. My family could tell you that about me, right? It's a constant tension. A true believer will not be identified with sin. A true believer will say, I struggle in this area. I'm tempted in this area. That's real. Paul talks about that in Romans. There's a constant tension. This is a very serious thing. So Paul is going right there. Why not be wrong? Why not be defrauded? In light of all this, Paul is just twisting, twisting, twisting their hearts right now, gripping their hearts to understand. But look at verse 11. This is the glorious gospel. He reminds them of the gospel. Of course, that's where you would go, right? Such were some of you. Such were some of you. You came out of that lifestyle. You used to be doing all that. You used to be getting drunk all the time. You used to be sleeping with the temple prostitutes. You used to be working and defrauding one another constantly. This is what you did. You used to be creating dissension with one another so people will take things to court. You used to be an ambassador for the devil. But Bible says, such were some of you, right? That was past and such were some of you. But you're washed. You were sanctified, set apart as holy. You were justified, declared innocent in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of his God. Now, the one, I'm, I'm going to spend more time on this next week. But look what Paul says. You were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to focus in on the Lord Jesus Christ. We all know Jesus. There is no other name that we would be saved. Amen? Jesus is our Savior. So Lord and Christ, Jesus is sandwiched in between Lord and Christ. These are titles that describe who he is. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. He's a Savior. Amen? Jesus is our Savior. Many of us have accepted him. Do you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior that he died for you? We say, Amen. The one that I want to make sure as a pastor that we emphasize is Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means he's curious, he's master, he's Lord. This describes who he is. He's our Lord. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? So because if Christ is your Lord, you're not going to be wronging and defrauding one another. That's the point. Christ dominates you and me. We consider him in everything that we do. Everything that we do. 
So I believe verse 11 here is, is, is a double-edged sword. What do I mean by that? There's, there's two purposes here, right? Double-edged sword. Double-edged sword. I believe Paul is trying to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. All right, let's talk about how he's trying to comfort the afflicted. You know that Christ is your Lord and Savior. You're sitting here right now on the grass, sweating like me and saying, you know what? Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I, I love him. I love him. I think about him all the time. But I know I don't live perfectly. And matter of fact, I've wronged people. And I've defrauded people in some ways. And not only that, people have wronged me and defrauded me. I believe Paul is comforting us because Paul's reminding us what we, who we are in Christ right now. That we're able to forgive those who wronged us because we've been forgiven of so much more. Amen? We've been forgiven of so much more that, you know what? Yeah, that was wrong. Yes, that was not right. Yes, that's not okay. Yes, I'm not going to be fooled again, but that was not right. But I forgive this person. I forgive my brother or sister. Because you also know this, that every single sin that was committed, even in thought, will be judged someday. You know this. Even if there's no reconciliation, there's no retribution, it's not fair. You know God will make it right someday. You know this. So God is comforting us through this, brothers and sisters. Undoubtedly, as I'm looking out into the grass here, young and old, there's people been hurt. I know there has been. Even in the church, I, I know they're here. But you could trust our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, how is Paul afflicting the comfortable? My concern here is this. I've never felt it so much now that I'm officially a pastor, okay? Is that I believe in the church, this church and other churches, there are people who believe that they're absolutely saved when they're not. Perhaps we just go, you know what? Yeah, of course I want my sins forgiven. But we've never fully given ourselves to Christ as our Lord. It's an absolute way of life. If Christ doesn't define you as your way of life and these other laundry lists of sins do, that could be a problem. And as a pastor, I'll be held accountable for the souls that I've been entrusted to take care of. All of us pastors feel this way. Every church leader feels this way, lay or vocational. We care about each other. So I hope the Lord is pricking your heart right now. I hope you feel bad about certain sins. We should. I hope you feel guilty and it's moving to, man, I'm really in Christ. Have I really been forgiven? Am I, I'm actually okay with wronging and defrauding other people and these laundry lists of issues here that we'll talk about next week. I'm actually okay with this. Perhaps the Lord is graciously afflicting you to call you to be comforted in the gospel. Right? This is what we're talking about. We're in the soul-saving business. I'm going to just finish up here. Someday, there will be a day. There will be a day, brothers and sisters, 
where every single one of us will be called into court. It's not going to be in the Corinthian court. It's not going to be in downtown L.A. This is going to be in the heavenly courtroom of God, where God himself will judge us. And the Bible says that everything spoken and done and thought will be displayed for everybody to see. Everything. And the God who's going to be judging the living and the dead is going to declare you with two, one of two verdicts. Innocent, justified, washed, sanctified, or guilty. He is a sinner. And this is the judgment that awaits us all. And this is where the gospel is what declares us Holy. Let me just read you one section out of Scripture here. Just so you know, I'm not being overly dramatic here. I shudder at this Scripture. We covered this in our Back to Church Basics series. But this is, this is absolutely sobering and one of the scariest parts of Scripture. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says who calls Jesus their Savior will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Is Christ your Lord? If Christ your Lord is your Lord, you'll consistently be looking to obey him. This is how you this is how we're wired. Many will say to me on that day, on that day, that's judgment day, friends, brothers and sisters. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles, signs works of power. And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, he's your savior, he died for my sins, you will be saved. That's the other alternative. Church family, I want us to really consider our our place with the Lord is Jesus. Have you fully given Jesus everything? Are you fully committed to Christ Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? Because in that day, in that day, that's all that's going to matter. Amen? What a great God we serve. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to preach your word. Thank you for the opportunity to learn more about what you're saying out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I pray, Lord, that those who are truly in faith will be comforted today. The wrongs that we have done and the wrongs that have been done to us, Lord, we just know that you took care of it. And Lord, if there's any one of us that needs to forgive anybody, that you brought somebody to mind today, that we will forgive them. We will release them. We will pursue them to reconcile with them. Father, I also pray for those who know they're not truly in the faith. That they will cry out to you today, Lord. Now is a day of salvation. Today is a day of redemption. Right now. That they would cry out to you and just confess that they're sinners and they need to come under your lordship and to receive the salvation that you've given us. They will repent of their sins and turn to you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. Would you do this, Holy Spirit? Would you enlighten their eyes? Would you open their ears to hear? Would you soften their hearts to have good soil so that the word of the cross, the gospel message, will have deep roots and produce incredible fruit in their lives? 
Thank you, Jesus, that we await your coming. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to earth 2,000 years ago to be our Lord and Savior. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.